when you think about the word hallelujah, it just means praise the Lord. And, and that's really the spirit with which we want to approach God's scripture and that we want to spend time together this morning is to just give God praise for what he has done. And so here's what I would love for you to do. Just close your eyes for a moment as we get prepared for prayer. And, and I want you to think about something that God has done for you recently. Or, or maybe picture someone that God has given you. Maybe it's a spouse or children or parents or friends. So maybe he's done something recently for you in your life. You've, you've seen healing. You've experienced his grace. You've experienced purpose. But I want you to identify something specific. And I want you just in your own heart, in your own mind, I want you to give praise to God for a moment. And just tell him, thank you. And be overwhelmed by his goodness and the things that he has done, the things that he has shown you, the things and the people he has given you. Just give him praise. And I want us to take time together as a church this morning, not just to be mindful of the things that we can tangibly see in our lives, but I just want us to give praise to him for who he is, for his character, for his nature. I want you to think about who our God is, that he is slow to anger, abounding in love, that he is rich in kindness, compassionate, gracious, that he rose, but now he reigns. And I want you to think of an attribute or parts of God's character, and I want you just to give praise for who he is. Father, we do come before you today declaring in song and in word, hallelujah. Father, we are so grateful for your goodness, your kindness, for who you are, Father. The, the gospel that reminds us that you championed over death, that you rose and now you reign, Father, that allows us to come into this sanctuary with joyful hearts. Father, once again reminded that we have received far more than we could ever imagine, so much more than what we deserve. And so help us to unload the, bolt, the, the burdens, the, the concerns, the, the worries, Father, that can so easily hinder us and distract us from seeing all that you have done. God, help us to lay those at your feet and offer a thousand hallelujahs and a commitment and conviction, God, that we can offer a thousand more because you are that good and you have done so many wonderful things for us. Father, with that sense of praise in our hearts and our minds this morning, we ask that you would prepare us now to hear your word and to receive it, God, in a manner that changes us and molds us more into your image. God, that we could truly be made new. Father, that we could find the renewal that comes only through knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you so much for that opportunity today. Fill this place, fill our hearts and our minds now with your presence. And we pray this all in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen. Well, it is good to see you, church family. Uh, I did miss you last week. Special word of thanks to Warren for filling in. He can do it all. He can lead worship. He can preach, right? We're going to have him do all of it on one Sunday at some point, uh, which he, he refuses that. But and, and not just his family. Special word of thanks to Sarah and their Two great kids, Ren and Ben. It's a, it's a family support whenever somebody's coming up here and leading. So we're truly blessed to have them as a part of our church family and grateful for him to fill in in my absence. Uh, got a, several updates for us this morning. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Romans 6. 
We're not going to get there for a while, but I'll forget otherwise. So just go ahead and, and turn uh, to Romans chapter 6. Warren introduced that subject last week. We're going to continue on in verses 5 through 11 a little bit later. Before we do, though, uh, there are a couple of things that I want to make sure that we cover. I, I mentioned to you the last time I was here two weeks ago that for the Sundays in July, I'm going to spend the first part of my message kind of covering some important updates for our church, especially as we get ready uh, for the fall semester and the start of a new school year. And, and so a couple of things that I want to share with you this morning, the first of which has to do with our facilities. I don't know how many of you noticed it as you walked down the hallway to come to the sanctuary today, but you probably noticed several things were off the wall. That's because we are getting a fresh coat of paint throughout our first floor starting tomorrow. Can I get an Amen. Amen. We're excited about that. New signage will be coming shortly after the new paint. This is all part of kind of a, a larger effort by the Property and Space Committee over the last several years to update our first floor. You may be sitting there thinking to yourself, but man, we're going to paint. What if we get paint on our new floors? Well, here's the good news. I don't know if you've walked on those floors recently. They're kind of special floors, kind of have a trampoline type feel every once in a while. Uh, there are certain spots throughout this first floor that obviously didn't go is planned, and we have been in consultation with the uh, manufacturer as well as the general contractor, and we are working to get that resolved. And so thank you for your patience. Uh, any of you that have ever done any sort of remodel or work at home, you know things don't always go according to plan, uh, but we're aware of that issue, and we are working diligently to get it resolved. And I especially want to publicly thank John Fisher and his team. Yes, put your hands together. His team, several others on staff who are working tirelessly to manage all those projects and get those things fixed. So we will be getting the floors fixed at some point in the near future as well. And that'll also really kind of help complement the whole first floor upgrades that we've been really working towards. And we, we are really excited. We've been wanting to get all that stuff done for the start of the, the new school year because we have some other things that we're just really excited about. As you heard me mention in the announcements earlier about the, the start to D groups on the 14th and uh, last time I was with you two weeks ago, we talked about in particular some of the things that we wanna do at that 9.30 hour that we are now rebranding as UBC Enriched. Depending on your experience in church, how long you've been in church, you may refer to that as Sunday school, you may refer to it as Sunday Connect, Sunday morning Bible study, there's always a different term it seems like, but we've settled in on UBC Enriched as we move forward for a couple of different reasons. And, and I'll get to the definition and the explanation for that as a reminder here in just a moment. But two weeks ago, when we were talking about that 9.30 hour in particular, uh, while there's a lot that's gonna be offered for kids and for youth, we were really focused in on some of the things that we had planned for adults. And we talked about the context of what had been happening over the last couple of years that was really driving our philosophy and our approach, that part of what we're really trying to address as a church family right now is to establish rhythm and tradition and clarity so, because so much of what we've had to, to utilize over the last couple of years has been uh, interim and temporary because we didn't know if protocols were going to change or variants were going to emerge. And so, so much of that was just incremental. But, but moving forward, starting with the start of this new school year, we're really thinking this is, this is who we want to be indefinitely. And, and so we want to establish tradition. We want to establish rhythm and provide that clarity that comes from those things. We, we want to lean into some of the strengths of who we are as a church to address some of those areas of weaknesses or concerns. And so the structure that we talked about last time I was here, we, we talked a little bit about timeline. Uh, the seventh is the facilitator training. Fourteenth is the launch event after church. Nothing will be really transpiring too much at 9.30 that day on the 14th. 
The 21st at 9.30 is gonna be kind of a church-wide service project where we build upon this backpack blessing, school supplies, praying for schools and teachers. We'll gather together in Harris Hall and do something collectively as we try to bless our community on the 21st. But those, those classes for adults, uh, the children will start on the 14th, but for adults will really begin on the 28th, okay? And, and so we talked about the structure of those classes. We're gonna have sessions that are eight weeks long in those first six weeks you're gonna have a chance to hear from one of three teachers. We're gonna have a teacher dedicated to something related to discipleship, a teacher dedicated to something related to healing, and then the third class will focus on justice. They'll have different topics each session that kind of fall within those categories, but that helps reiterate our vision, things that we're really pursuing as a church. Those first six weeks within that session will be that teaching. Uh, week seven, we're gonna probably try to bring in a guest speaker of some sort, either you know, in small groups or maybe in a one large group. We'll kind of play that by year from session to session. But then week eight of every session, we're gonna all be back together as a church family in Harris Hall, having a meal together, sharing in fellowship together, and previewing the new teachers and new subjects for the next session. Okay, so that's the rhythm and the structure that we're gonna have for that UBC Enriched Hour. Here's what I wanna talk about this morning, though, to follow up on this conversation. I wanna to explain to you why. Why we're doing it this way. Because inevitably, whenever we have these conversations about Sunday morning, and, and we also talk about D groups, I will, without question, have some sort of conversation where somebody asks me, why do I need to do both? Right, that always comes up. And depending on where you're involved and where you're connected to is gonna really determine which one you probably choose. So a lot of people that are already coming at 9.30 on Sunday morning, more often than not will say, why do I need to be in a D group? I've already got this group that I'm with on 9.30. Right? And then other people that are already in a D group will say, why in the world do you want me to come here earlier on Sunday morning? I already got my community. Like, I don't, what it, I, that's what I want to answer today is the why and how they work together. Now, I could focus on the nuances that make those two uh, dynamics different right? in terms of how many people can attend, the, the content, the duration. Right? There are differences, but I don't want to focus on those nuances. I want to really kind of explain a larger picture as to why we see both of those things being important and for everyone to be able to engage in it, okay? So to help explain that, let me remind you that the word enriched means to add value or significance to something. Notice it doesn't say convenience, right? So we're not trying to add convenience, I'm sorry. I know that's kind of the mantra of our culture in today and we're looking for convenience, but the reality is, is that every single one of us knows in any arena of life, if you want it to be more significant and have added value, it's going to cost, right? Doesn't matter what you're talking about, right? You're gonna have to get up early or stay late, whether that's to improve in school, in athletics, in relationships, in your career, like it, what you put in is what you get out. So the less you put in, the cheaper it's gonna feel, the less significant it's gonna feel. The more you put in, the more cost, the more value that comes with it. That's true for anything in life, okay? The good news is, is it's your choice. You get to choose. It doesn't happen magically. It's not gonna happen under compulsion. It's, it's your choice. But you get to decide what kind of value and significance you wanna add. And this is true for faith. Right now, Jesus has done a remarkable work for all of us, right? Through his death, burial, and resurrection, we see an incredible demonstration of grace and love. But it's still your choice because the invitation is come follow me. And I assure you, many people didn't. They chose not to. 
and they watched from the sidelines. But a select few, man, they saw it. They wanted the value, wanted the significance, and so they chose to follow him, right? It's always a choice, right? And, and that's part of what we're trying to, su- to suggest is that we want to create as many ways for people to find that added value and significance in what it means to follow Jesus, Okay, so let me try to break that down further for you. When you think about who we are as a church and all the different things that we do, we fundamentally want to advocate time and time again that the foundation of who we are as a church is rooted in discipleship. And the way we often explain that is we want to be disciples who make disciples. And it's both, right? Discipleship, to be a disciple is understanding my identity as a follower of Jesus, And so everything we do, we want to cultivate that identity, remind you of who you are in Christ, that you can grow in your identity in Christ. But we don't want to stop there. We also want to encourage one another and hold each other accountable and to live alongside one another to go and make disciples, right? Because that's what Jesus has commanded us to do. And typically in American Christianity, we love the first one, Right? We, we love being able to sit around and think about who we are in Christ and study the Bible and all this. But when we have to actually go make disciples, like engage the world around us, talk to, to those who are far from God, I mean, that's a much different part of the equation that oftentimes makes us uncomfortable. But we have to do all of it. And we have to pursue it wholeheartedly because I assure you that's where I fundamentally believe you're going to find the most value and significance added to your life. All right, and so when we talk about how we do that, how do we live out being disciples who make disciples, we're talking about creating numerous opportunities and atmospheres where we grow in that sort of community, teaching, and accountability. Right? And there are three distinct arenas that we're talking about specifically in pursuit of that vision today. That would be this arena right here, 1030 worship. Okay, that'd be one arena. The second one is the 9.30 hour, UBC Enriched, right? Those classes and those opportunities to fellowship and to be in community. And then the third would be discipleship groups, right? And every single one of those arenas should help us grow in our understanding of what it means to be a disciple who can then make disciples, okay? That's where we should be held accountable, enriched, equipped, and actually pursuing those things. Okay, so the reality is, though, is that I want you to understand why all three of those are significant because a lot of times, like I said, people are usually just gonna choose two of those three arenas. And churches often only offer two of those three arenas. But we believe there is greater value and significance in offering all three. Let me explain to you why. I want you to picture a house, okay? Just picture, I'm gonna give you an image to try to explain this to you. Picture a house, and as I walk you through this illustration, I'm gonna offer up for you to consider a couple different vantage points, sometimes as the guest, sometimes as the host. Okay, let's start with the guest. Let's say you've been invited over to a house, you drive up to this house for the very first time. As soon as you drive up to a house and you get out of your car, you're parked on the curb, you get a chance to see and understand and learn about the family that lives within that home. Right, you, you've got a lot to figure out just by looking at the exterior of that house. Right, how they kept the yard, how it's decorated, what condition it's in. You come up to my house, you're gonna see a zip line that's fall down, falling down, you're gonna see a swing in the front yard. Like it's gonna tell you things about our family. Right? But but you haven't been asked just to come drive by the house. You've been invited in. So people walk into the house. And when you walk into the house as a guest, where do you typically get to be taken to? All the common areas. Right? You walk through entry halls, 
You go through living rooms. Maybe you pass the dining room on your way. You're going to sit in the living room possibly. Maybe you'll gather in the kitchen at some point. You'll sit around a kitchen table and have conversation, maybe share a meal together. But it's all these common areas and common spaces, correct? Like that's typically where you go when you walk in. And as you walk through those areas, you learn more and more about the family. You see how it's decorated. You see how they interact. That's where relationships begin, If you're the host, you spend a lot of time getting those areas clean, getting them prepared, choosing how you're gonna decorate the wall so that people can understand who you are. That's the second space where relationships flourish. But you know what will rarely happen? There'll still be a large part of the house that is considered to be off limits, right? Like parts of your house that are deemed to be a little bit more personal, that as a guest, you're not gonna go walking into, and as a host, you're not gonna invite people into, right? Those are the bedroom spaces, personal spaces, This is what was always ironic for me growing up is because my mom would have people over to our house. We'd have parties a lot and for a lot of different reasons and occasions. That's what you do in Abilene because there's nothing else to do. And so she would invite people over and she would say, Jeremiah, you need to clean your room. And I'd say, why? It's not like you're gonna bring your friends and hang out in my room. I was a real pleasant child to raise, by the way. But I really would. I was like, I don't get it. Like, why do I need to clean my room? She's like, because I don't want people to see your mess. I'm like, well, close the door. Like, I mean, like, this was the conversation. I didn't understand it because that's not where you bring those people. That's a different space, right? But the reality was is that I knew I had certain friends, certain really close friends that could come into that space anytime. And yes, when my friends came over, maybe I was still mindful of how I could clean that room and get it all ready. But you know who could walk in there no matter what, no matter condition, no matter what time, was family, so those, those personal spaces, there are select few that could be in there, see that mess, and be a part of that personal experience no matter what. And so my point is this. Even in our own homes, we see that we have different degrees of relationships and connectivity. And we actually have spaces within our homes that allow those different types of relationships to grow and to flourish. But you need all three. Like, Play that out, okay? Let let me give you the correlation. Sunday morning worship is sitting there in the front yard, seeing the house, okay? Maybe even catch a glimpse of the family through the window, but that's kind of what Sunday morning worship is at 1030, right? That's that common space when people get to be brought into your home, you gather around kitchen tables and living rooms and you let relationships flourish, that's UBC and Rich. That's the 930 hour. Those personal spaces that are really intimate, where people get to see your mess and you get to really find a close connection of depth with friends and family, that's discipleship groups. We need all three. Imagine only having one or two of the three, right? Like if you only come to 930 worship, that's like standing in somebody's front yard and just watching them through the windows. That's creepy and sad. So like we want you to do more than just come to this. You're just watching people. That's really all that's taking place if this is your only connection. That's not valuable, that's not significant enough. We've invited you in. Come build relationships, be a part of a family, be a part of a community. That's UVC and Rich. So let's say you step into the house, but now only one of those next two spaces is offered, right? And so all you have is the common area. That's pretty good, you'll get to come inside, probably share a meal with somebody, build some really good relationships and have a lot of fun. But over time, you know what you'll discover? I don't have any real depth here. I got a lot of connections but there's still some things that just feel like off limits to me and to others. I need depth, I need true friendship, I need that familial connection. It's not enough. And you'll be longing for that third space. 
And so a lot of times when we're a church that just offers Sunday worship and UBC and Rich, we'll make great connections with very little depth. So we have to have discipleship groups to complement that depth. Now let's say you take out that second space, that common area, and you just have Sunday morning worship and you just have discipleship groups in those personal spaces. That's where awkwardness really sets in. Like can you imagine showing up at somebody's house and as soon as you walk in being like, hey, can I see the bedrooms? Or a host being like, hey, so glad that you're here. You wanna come to the bedrooms? It'd be like, are we ready for that? Like this is normal, right? Like this isn't the way that this should progress. You need a place for relationships to flourish, right? You need that space. And similarly, at the same time, imagine that if you went over to somebody's house and they never actually came out in those common areas, they just hung out in the back bedroom with their family and their closest friends. At some point, you'd be like, so do, do we get to hang out with them? Or do, do I get to find a friendship like that? It'd feel incredibly exclusive, right? And that happens all the time. People get their little inner circle and everybody else is looking in and going, well, I, I want that. How do I get that? And if you're in that little inner circle and you're just in your room the entire time, eventually you know what's going to happen. You're going to need to leave your room, go out, get some water, and you're going to walk out to the rest of your house and you see a bunch of people in your house and you're going to think they're all strangers because you've just been hanging out with five or six people the whole time. You see what I'm saying? You need all three spaces. If you just have your cluster of your little intimate group, that's great. But you're gonna come to church on Sunday morning, you're gonna feel like you're surrounded by strangers. You need that common space. If you just have the common space, you need that depth. That's why we need all three. And so, yeah, it will be a little bit more inconvenient. There's a little bit more effort that goes into having the chance to, to cultivate that. Yeah, you might have to get up earlier. You might have to do some things, but I truly believe it will add value and significance to all of it. Now, let me take that imagery and drive it to the text for this morning, okay? What we hope is that while you're spending that sort of time in community in the house is that all of us are gonna be having those sorts of conversations that say, we're not supposed to stay inside. We gotta get in the car, we gotta go. We gotta go make disciples. And the way that we know that we are spending effective time with one another is that when we go get in the car and we engage the world around us, we are now having the chance to make some serious impact on the lives of other people, right? In particular, making disciples. So when we think about how do we measure that in our church, it's not just are you involved in a discipleship group, are you coming on Sunday morning, it's how is that shaping you and equipping you to engage the world around you? And one of the great markers for any church to determine whether or not they are effective at making disciples is baptism, right? And if you wanna get kind of squirmy and be like, I don't like having goals on baptism, which we have one, right? You you wanna, I don't know if that's something I wanna measure. Can I just tell you, that wasn't my idea. I wasn't sitting around going, well, let's see, how can we, I don't know, let's get people to step into some water, right? Like, that was Jesus, This is his symbol, this is his marker, and this is his commission. Go and baptize them. And so we will know if we're effective when we see baptisms. We set a goal for 200 baptisms. We've probably seen about 15 to 16 since we set that goal, praise God. But we got work to do. And so the accountability that we have for one another is if every single household within this church would identify people in their lives who are far from Jesus and invest in them and pour into them and pray to the point that we would see that sort of life change. We'll see them baptized and we'll actually be equipped to walk with them and disciple them in meaningful community teaching and accountability. That's what we desire. That's why the goal is here, right? And so 
all of that is for us to pursue these things. And I put that image in front of you of baptism because it is one of the most powerful and most beautiful expressions of the gospel that the church has been given. It is incredibly powerful, right? It is, it is the gospel succinctly presented in symbolic form. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection and the believer's response to that incredible gospel. And I share that with you as an image today because as we begin to look towards Romans 6, it is the controlling image that to me brings these first 14 verses of chapter 6 to life, right? In fact, whenever somebody within our church wants to be baptized, I will meet with them and we will look through the first 14 verses of chapter 6 every single time. Because to me, it just, it clarifies what the symbolism of baptism means, and so as we begin to turn to that passage today, I want you to think about the imagery of baptism and what we see when somebody is submerged in the water and brought up out of the water and everything that is a part of that symbolic act. Today in particular, verses 5 through 11, really help give some color and context to the part of the baptism uh, practice of putting somebody under the water and bringing them out. Next week, when we look at verses 12 through 14, we'll have a chance to get greater clarity of why we ask a profession of faith and what does it mean to truly live as Jesus is Lord. But, but the image of baptism to me provides a tremendous example of these first 14 verses. So let's take a look at it, okay? Verses five through 11, picking up where Warren left us off in the first four verses last week to introduce this theme where you saw so much reference in terms of baptism. Paul's gonna continue with his explanation of what that looks like starting in verse five. He says, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, so with those verses, verses five through 11, several things that I wanna point out to us this morning. The controlling phrase for this passage uh, that I think really helps us understand everything that Paul is trying to unpack in the imagery of baptism in particular is that we are united with him in a death like his and we are united with him in a resurrection like his, right? And so the two points of image are his death and his resurrection. Let's never look beyond that as being the central message of the gospel. Now there are other implications of it, but if we want to understand what it is that we are proclaiming, what it is that has changed us, what it is that we believe, it is the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel, okay? And so the, these verses, verses five through 11 here, have those two images front and center, Jesus' death and his resurrection. And the phrase that controls it there in verse five is that we are united with him in those things, right? It's mentioned both times in verse five, for if we are united with him in a death like his, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. And so we really need to understand that phrase, united with, and what it really means. And I think that's an important thing for us to evaluate, because I don't know if you have a, a specific picture that comes to your mind when you think about being united with something, 
But when I try to imagine how that word resonates with most people in the world today, I would think that a lot of us would have to acknowledge that unity and being united with someone is often conditional and circumstantial, right? For example, I can be united with a lot of people based on what football team they like, right? I can be united with a lot of people based on their political affiliation. I can be united with people based on where they live and if they're in my neighborhood. But the minute that those circumstances change, right, and I'm either not in that school or I don't like that team anymore or I've moved neighborhoods or we're not talking politics, right, then that, that relationship can change. That unity can diminish or weaken. And so a lot of times for us, unity is something that is circumstantial and is conditional, right? And, and that is problematic because that often means it will diminish over time. And, and for us, I think that becomes a very fundamental problem in following Jesus, is that for a lot of us, being united with Jesus is conditional and circumstantial. As long as my circumstances are going a certain way, as long as certain conditions are being met, yeah, I'll unite myself to Jesus. And we'll have these loose affiliations that really don't stick over time, right? It's like, we're not really united with him, it's more like Velcro or a weak adhesive that gives out after a while. You guys ever seen that? Like, so we had our daughter's birthday a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we always decorate the house before a birthday party. And I have one responsibility of getting the crepe paper and putting up these streamers in our living room. And it drives me crazy because I'll take streamers from every corner of the living room and take them to the middle and attach them to the fan in the middle so you have like these four little canopy-looking arches in our living room. And we'll do it the night before so that when the kids wake up, everything's decorated on their birthday. And man, without fail, like every single year, I will put those streamers up and I'll wake up in the morning and at least one of them has fallen down. And it drives me nuts. So like this year, I was determined. Man, I was up there and I was getting the tape and I was like, four, five, six, seven pieces of tape. I was like, you are not gonna fall down this year. You know what I'm saying? And I was working really hard to make sure it was attached. Sure enough, wake up the next morning, one of them was falling down, right? Because it was stretched too far that the adhesive just wasn't strong enough, right? And I think that's how a lot of us often affiliate with Jesus. Right, we'll try all these different things. I'll go to church more, I'm gonna read my Bible more, I do all these different things, and we'll make it like conditional and circumstantial and not heart. And no matter how hard we try, ultimately that unity diminishes over time. It's like this weak adhesive. That is not at all what this word implies. Right, you will look at the definition of this word. It means to be grown together with the force of to be fused with. Right, now you start talking about fusion. Right, if you are familiar with that process at all, that's like taking two metals, extreme intense heat that melts it down and permanently affixes it to one another. It's this idea of permanence, not conditional and circumstantial. Right, and I love the idea that it actually comes through heat. Right, that, that through trial, through tribulation, through circumstance, our unity with Jesus should be that much more affixed and permanent when in reality, so oftentimes, we'll go through difficulty and adversity and those circumstances and conditions will change and it'll weaken us. That's not unity. That's not what he is saying here. To be united with Christ is to be fused together with him in permanence. That is your association with his death and his resurrection. It is not conditional and circumstantial. It does not wither over time. It strengthens. And that's the whole controlling verse. That's the imagery of baptism. It's a declaration to say, I am fusing myself to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Okay, so we have to understand that on the front end of it. So the following verses, 6 through 10, kind of help us understand the differences between being united in his death and being united in his resurrection. Okay, so when we say we're united and fused together in his death, what are we talking about? Paul explains, he says, essentially, you're crucifying the old self, right? That, that's what's happening. And that's a, a terminology and expression he uses in other letters, like in Galatians, Galatians 2.20, where it says, I've been crucified with Christ. I think it goes without saying, this is not a literal crucifixion. It's not a literal death, right? It is not an actual um, termination of your physical existence, right? It's, it's an image, it's a metaphor. And the way he explains it here in Romans 6 is that the old self has been crucified, has been killed. And so if you read this in the context of Romans 4 and 5 that talks about those two different eras of human history, the era under Adam, right, who brought in sin and the problem of brokenness to the world, and the era of Christ, who through his obedience and righteousness brings forgiveness and righteousness, righteousness to the world, the old self is the self that belongs under the reign of Adam. And that's what's being killed. Right, essentially he's saying, I am severing all ties to the world. I'm no longer gonna be conformed to the patterns of this world that is mastered by sin. I'm gonna be set free of those things. I'm killing myself and my sinful impulses and my sinful nature that belongs to this world. Right, that's, that's the example. That is the explanation of what Paul is trying to offer here. And if you think about how that should really work itself out, it's, it's pretty important to make sure that we, we understand the different subtleties with it, right? So part of it in dying to sin, uh, in that death that we die, is a lot like a dead man, okay? He's essentially saying you should no longer respond to the world around you as if you live in it. You should respond to it like a dead man, okay? So uh, go to a cemetery after church today and invite a dead man to lunch, and just let me know what kind of response you get, right? Like, you'll get no response, clearly. That's the image. When the world comes knocking and those impulses to sin are starting to invite you and stir you or, or tempt you or whatever it is, your response to those impulses should be like a dead man. You have died to sin. You respond to it no longer. You don't belong to this world. That's what he's trying to convey. You have died to sin. It no longer has mastery over you. Okay, so now that's where we need to understand some of the nuances and subtleties of this text that lead us into being united with Christ's resurrection. Okay, so part of what we're really dying to is understanding that sin no longer has mastery over us, right? And so if you think about it, before Jesus, death won, period, the end, and your whole existence was waiting for death's victory over you. It mastered you. And so it's not to say that by crucifying my old self, I'm all of a sudden just gonna be able to miraculously conquer every temptation and every sin that ever comes my way. What I'm realizing is that sin no longer masters me, that, that death doesn't win, right? That Jesus brings victory. And so what I need to realize is that dying to self is not immediate perfection, but it is pointing me to the hope that it no longer is master of my existence, that there is a way to find victory over it, and that dying to sin is a lifelong process. Can I say that again? Dying to sin 
is a lifelong process. And, and Paul will continue to unpack that. We'll get to chapter seven and he'll join us in that struggle. Man, the things I don't wanna do, I do. Like we all can recognize the challenge of dying to sin, right? And so part of it is understanding that it's not immediate perfection, it's being set free from its mastery and committing to this lifelong process that says no matter how long this world tries to pull me in or lead me astray, I'm not gonna respond. I'm gonna continually die to sin as long as it takes. It's a lifelong process. Now, I recognize that's hard. I won't make you raise your hand, but all of us could probably testify, yeah, that's hard, Jeremiah. It's hard to die to sin. I've been doing it my whole life. It's not easy. And so there are moments where we'll get weary and so the question then becomes, how do I find the resolve to continue to try to over and over die to this sin that so frequently tries to lead me astray? And that's where we look to his resurrection. Right, the finish line, the promise that we will get that victory is the promise of a bodily resurrection. Right, like that's what we're looking towards. Right, we're, we're saying all of that war, all of that battle with dying to sin will come to an end when we are resurrected to Christ, with Christ, and in Christ. And so when we grow weary and we begin to wonder, can I really make it that far? Can I keep running this race? Where do we find encouragement? Where do we find assurance? Where do we find resolve? Well, we find it in Jesus' resurrection. If Jesus was raised, so will we. If, if he conquered death, then I know that I will as well. And so it's worth it the fight, and I'm gonna to continue to fight and die to sin as long as it takes, because I'm not just uniting myself with him in his death, I'm uniting myself with him in his resurrection. And I declare that hope, and it's the hope of the resurrection that allows us to continue on that journey. And so Paul's unpacking all of this, and he points out that Jesus is the prime example, right? He says, this is exactly what Jesus did. He died to sin once and for all, as a death on the cross, right? It is done. He doesn't need to die again. And he came and conquered death. And so now the life he lives, he lives to God. Jesus is the perfect example of how we can live similarly, of what it means to be united in his death and resurrection, which is what leads to verse 11 and Paul's emphasis and word of instruction for us. With Jesus in mind and seeing what he's done and understanding what this unity looks like in the same way, just like Christ, count yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Man, if there is one way to summarize these collection of verses that we're looking at, to summarize the symbolism of lowering somebody into the water and bringing them out of the water, it is a declaration that says, I am dead to sin and alive to God. And that is a beautiful depiction of the believer's life. Right? And, and that's what Paul is trying to bring to greater clarity for us. So what I wanna do for, for the last few moments here is try to talk about the practical implications of that, right? How do I do that? How do I, in the same way, count myself dead to sin but alive to God? How do I live that out practically? Now, we'll be able to expound upon this and elaborate upon this next week because that's really what Paul is teasing. That's what he's setting the stage for in verses 12 through 14. So we'll, we'll elaborate on it, but I didn't wanna just leave us there today. I wanted to at least tease a few basic things uh, this morning, okay? And, and the reason I think this is really important for us to consider is because part of what we need to recognize when we think about this call to be dead to sin and alive to God is that we live in a world that wants the opposite, 
We live in a world that wants to be dead to God and alive to sin. Like, we, we are surrounded by culture and by voices that are going to celebrate sin, that's going to invent new ways of committing sin, that's going to champion sin, and we have to be able to recognize those voices and our place within this culture. And so how do you do that? Well, three things I wanna offer this morning that will be done. Uh, this is, these are the things that I would say help you really uh, live a life where you're dead to sin and alive to God. It helps you do both. Uh, the first one should come as no surprise. I told you a couple of weeks ago, this is like the application in 95% of the sermons that I preach, know your Bible. Right, like if you're gonna die to sin, you have to know what sin is. You gotta, you gotta know what it is. And there's no doubt that the voices of our culture are going to try to confuse you, change it, and get you to believe it's something else. And that's really the heart of the garden, right? The heart of Adam's fall to be like God, what was the characteristic that was so godlike that, that he was so tempted by and Eve was so tempted by? To eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which means to know good and evil for myself. I get to decide what's good, what's evil, what's right, what's wrong, what's sin, what isn't. That's what culture wants to do, especially in our culture, where truth gets to be subjective, right? You do you, I'll do me. Man, I'll get to decide what, what's good for me, you decide what's good for you. That is the heart of sinfulness, right? To be able to make those determinations for ourselves. And so what you really have to do is recognize what voice have I given authority in my life to help me determine what is and what isn't sinful, what is and what isn't wrong. Because we're listening to something and a lot of times we're listening to the wrong things. And we're letting those influence us to a very alarming degree. We have to know the scriptures. And the scriptures not only help us define sin and know what it is so that we can identify it and point it out, it helps us combat sin. It's an incredibly effective tool for us to navigate this life that wants to be dead to sin but alive to God. Right? And, and what happens is the more we, we spend time in God's word, the more we hide his word in our heart, it's going to help us navigate those moments so that when we encounter those moments, we can die to sin and live to God. Can I give you an example? Right? I may have shared this in the past before, but this is one that I, I frequently go back to because when I was uh, 16 years old was when I really began to get serious about my faith. Right? And I really tried to start figuring out what did it mean to follow Jesus. And I'll never forget in the early uh, few seasons or a few months of following Christ, reading Matthew 5, 27 through 28. That's a part of the, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you commit adultery with her in your heart. And that verse stuck immediately. And I can tell you that through the rest of high school, college, on into adulthood, even today, when the sinful impulses of this world come knocking and try to lure me into lust, that verse comes racing to my mind. And it helps me identify it and say, nope, that's sinful, and then combat it and say, I'm gonna die to that impulse so I can live to God instead of living to sin. And there are so many other examples 
so many other situations, verses that I didn't even commit to memory, but because we were able to read scripture together, because we were in God's word, they were hidden in my heart that all of a sudden you encounter a moment in a situation and they spring up into your soul and they help you identify sin, combat it so that you die to it and then live to God. We have to know the word. We have to know his scripture. Right, so the second one that complements it as well is uh, having the right sort of community. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I wanna come back to it for a little bit. First Corinthians tells us, do not be misled. I love that that's how it starts. It's a good reminder that we can very easily be misled. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. That's a really important verse. Now let me, let me say a few things about that verse because I don't want us to misunderstand that and take on this mindset that says, I just need to retreat and withdraw and create a Christian bubble, right? Lord knows a lot of us fall victim to that kind of mindset. We are never called to retreat and withdraw from the world. That's where we go and make, right? And so we don't need to insulate ourselves, but a lot of times we do. And in fact, you wanna know a good indicator about where you are in terms of your ability to make disciples? I can tell you I've had numerous conversations in this church and in other churches where I started talking about discipleship And we'll start talking about, hey, do you have somebody in your life that's far from Jesus? And I can't tell you how many times people will tell me, I don't know anyone that's far from Christ. And I will often think and often say, that's a pretty good indicator that you are too insulated, right? And that you're making it much harder to make disciples because you've created a Christian bubble, right? That's not what we're called to do. We should all have people quickly in our minds that we know are far from Jesus, all right, so this is not a verse that should be hijacked and used as an excuse to just retreat and withdraw. However, when we engage the world around us, we have to do so prudently and wisely. We have to do so understanding that we can be misled. We have to engage this world in community, in good healthy community, not a bad one that's gonna corrupt good character, but one that's gonna teach us and remind us we're called to die to sin and be alive for God. That's why those arenas are so important. That's why Sunday morning here in this service at UBC Enriched and Discipleship Groups, that is fostering community that's gonna help you engage and allow you to consistently encourage one another to die to sin and live for God. We have to have the healthy, meaningful community. Bad company can corrupt good character all too quickly. The third one, and then we'll be done. The third one I offer for us this morning is something I've said uh, previously. I think we talked about this when we were talking about joy, but in particular is just living with purpose, right? In fact, what I would really try to couch that in is, is love. And, and here's how I wanna explain that because uh, part of what I think can happen that I don't want to suggest whenever you have these conversations about dying to sin and living for God is that a lot of times Christianity can be reduced to this, this mindset of just abstaining from evil. And so my whole practice of following Jesus is don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Which is why a lot of times Christians get this uh, uh, kind of example and, and get this reputation of just being known for what they're against rather than what they're for. That's problematic, right? It's not just die to sin, it's live for God, right? And so how do I live for God? How do I make sure that I'm not just spending my whole time and energy trying to avoid sinful behavior, but I'm actually filling my life with good, meaningful, purposeful things? It's love, right? I mean, if you look at what Jesus did, he demonstrates what that life should be filled with, service, 
I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. He washes his disciples' feet and then says, now you go and do likewise. When he reveals the greatest commandment, he says, you know how it's not just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You know how you do that? You actually love your neighbor as yourself. You need to fill your life with a radical and unyielding love for the neighbor. Man, if, if we filled our lives with servanthood and compassion and a radical and unyielding love for others, do you understand how much easier it is to die to sin? Like, you hear, do you understand how much fainter those voices become? Because life is no longer about just avoiding mistakes and wrong behavior. It's about living for God. And so that's what we are called to do, right? Find that purpose, find that servanthood, love in a radical and unyielding way for those that need it. Meet the needs of others. And we do those three things. Know his word, find healthy community, and live for God with that sort of purpose. I assure you, these verses all of a sudden become that much more accessible. And we'll elaborate on that a little bit more next week. But that's the imagery of baptism. That's what we're saying. I want to be united with Jesus in his death and in his resurrection. And here's, here's how I'll, I'll summarize this to close us up. There is nothing in this world, nothing in your life that is going to give you more value and more significance than being a disciple who makes disciples. I dare you to find anything that comes close to it. Nothing that this world can offer is going to speak to you, give you joy, passion, purpose, and invigorate your heart like being someone that is fully committed day in and day out to being united with Jesus in his death and his resurrection so that you can die to sin and live for God and be that disciple who is called to make disciples. The more you commit yourself to that each and every day is an opportunity to step into his incredible love where you get to see that the creator of the universe is rich in love. He loves you so much, loves this world so much that he gave his one and only son. Gave his one and only son to die the death that we deserve so that the punishment that brings us peace could be upon him. He died to sin once and for all so that it could no longer have mastery over any of us. So that the promise could be that any of us who believe in him, follow him, give our lives to him, we won't perish, but we will have everlasting life. Amen? That's the invitation. There is nothing more valuable and significant than that. But the choice is yours. So what will you choose? Convenience? Right, something that's easy? Or will you give him everything to experience it so that we can come here day after day week after week, and celebrate the wonderful, marvelous love of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we do ask, Father, that you would strengthen us and encourage us to be dead to sin, but to live for you. Father, we stand amazed continually at this gospel that gives us such hope, that invites us into so many different relationships and different seasons and different circumstances. 
Father, we celebrate the many wonderful relationships that you provide to us through the life of this church. And we pray that we would embrace them in a very thoughtful and meaningful way, but Father, in a way that also helps us to see all that you've done for us in Christ so that collectively as one body, Father, we can champion this gospel message. We can see baptisms. We can see life change. We can see your saints, your children rising up, declaring to the world around them we have died to sin and we live to God. Help us to do that, Father, faithfully and courageously each and every day. We love you, Father, and we pray all these things in your precious and holy name. Amen and amen.